0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, October 9th. I'm Marco Wormann. The Pakistani Taliban claims responsibility for shooting and wounding a 14-year-old girl. She'd received threats for supporting girls' education, but the last straw, according to the Taliban, was
1: this. She has said that she likes American President Barack Obama and that uh, she praises whatever he's doing for peace in the world. Also, concern
0: in Egypt over who interprets what's allowed under Islamic law, plus what is platinum, the metal at the heart of South Africa's mining unrest.
2: E.R.I.s. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives telling who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. i Marco
0: Werman. This is The World. We take it for granted that girls in this country go to school every day and face no consequences for doing so. Not so in one part of Pakistan, the Swat Valley. And today, further evidence of how hard it is for girls to carry out the simple act of getting an education. A 14-year-old schoolgirl attacked today. Malala Yousafzai is an activist for girls' education. She was leaving her class in her hometown in the Swat Valley, Mingora, and heading to her school bus when gunmen who were looking for her shot her in the head and neck. The Taliban has claimed responsibility. Haroon Rashid joins us from Islamabad. He's the editor for the BBC's Urdu Language Service in Pakistan, and he knows Malala Yousafzai. Haroon, first of all, update us on Ms. Yousafzai's status right now. How, how is she doing?
1: Well, she's been taken in a helicopter to the city of Peshawar, which is the main provincial town and much better with medical facilities. Officials and the the doctors there tell us that she has got a 50-50 chance at the moment, but she is still unconscious. And the doctors tell us that uh, the next 10 days would be quite critical for her. So she's being kept in an intensive care unit.
0: And the Taliban has claimed responsibility. It seems they're still angry with her and determined apparently to kill her.
1: Yeah, I mean, she has been receiving threats from the Taliban for quite some time. But the statement, the banned the e taliban Pakistan, an umbrella organization of militant organizations in Pakistan, throws a bit of a light on why they chose to go after her now. And the reason they said was somewhere in an interview she has said that she likes American President Barack Obama and that he was her idol and that uh, she praises whatever he's doing for peace in the world. So I think this was a tipping point for the Taliban, and that's why they decided to go after her today.
0: Arun, tell us how you met uh, this brave 14-year-old girl.
1: Well, she was already writing uh, diaries for our Urdu website, bbcurdu.com, for quite some time. During the Taliban time, under a pen name, Gul Makai, And uh, we thought that we need to find somebody who can tell us what the situation is under Taliban rule at that time.
0: This is in 2008 when the Taliban had essentially occupied the Swat Valley and
1: told girls, you can't go to school. Yeah, exactly at that time. And uh, there was quite tense situation in that region. As we can see from one of her diaries that I could just recall on January 15, 2009, she woke up three times in the night because of artillery fire. Mm. So she was telling us how she and other of her friends were feeling sitting at home, not being able to go to school.
0: Well, I have a, a one entry here from January 3rd of that same year in which she writes, I had a terrible dream yesterday with military helicopters and the Taliban. I've had such dreams since the launch of the military operation in Swat. I was afraid of going to school because the Taliban had issued an edict banning all girls from attending schools. On my way home from school, I heard a man saying, I will kill you. I hastened my pace, and after a while, I looked back if the man was still coming behind me. But to my utter relief, he was talking on his mobile I must have been threatening someone else over the phone. It seems like uh, this is both an exercise in relieving the pressure of what she must have been facing at the time, but also, I mean, there's clear fear and anxiety in her writing.
1: Yeah, I mean, she wrote so nicely that I mean, some of the people started doubted whether this was a seventh grade student who was writing such uh, an elaborate picture of the whole situation at that time, the kind of terror that she is passing through. So really, it was a very popular diary amongst our readers, listeners and the English websites also picked it up, and she gained a lot of fame.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a real adult quality in her writing, and at the same time, I see this line from January 14th. Since today was the last day of school, we decided to play in the playground a bit longer. I am of the view that the school will one day reopen, but while leaving, I looked at the building as if I would not come here again. That's just so poignant. You've got this adult and child in the same body. Yeah,
1: of course. I mean, it's quite hard feeling to see that things did get better. In 2009, when the Taliban were uprooted and sort of a peace, relative peace, returned to Swat Valley. I mean, she did manage to restart her school in Mingora, where she was attending her classes today. And when she finished her school and coming out, one of the attackers with a pistol opened fire on her school van And it seems that he knew who he was looking for because some of the witnesses told us that he specifically asked for Malala. And when the student said, we don't know who she is, he shot two students at the same time Mm. to make sure that either of them would be Malala. Arun, you've met Malala
0: Yousafzai. What is she like? I mean, does she come across as somebody who is this 14-year-old uh, activist for girls' education?
1: No, not at all. I mean, she is quite a beautiful little child. I can recall her face, the smile on her face. Initially, she's shy, but when you ask her any question, she is so prepared. You sometimes are surprised by the answers, that whether she has learned them by heart or whether It's just something natural that is happening in front of you.
0: And I gather because of the work uh, Malala Yousafzai has done, she received Pakistan's highest civilian award. Is that right?
1: Yeah, she got uh, the civilian bravery award from the president last year. And apart from that, she was listed for several other awards internationally as well.
0: Well, we all wish Malala Yousafzai uh, well and a fast recovery from her injuries. Arun Rashid, the editor of the BBC's Urdu service in Islamabad, thank you very much. Thank you. A ban on girls' education is one of the hallmarks of the Taliban ideology. It's considered part of the militant group's interpretation of Sharia law. In the West, the term Sharia is understood to mean Islamic law, but what Sharia is exactly is a matter of interpretation. In Egypt, for instance, there's disagreement about what Sharia means, even as the concept looks certain to be enshrined in a new constitution. The assembly that's drafting that constitution is dominated by Islamist parties. Reporter Ursula Lindsay has more from Cairo.
3: A small protest gathered earlier this week outside the gates of the building where the overwhelmingly male, largely Islamist assembly is writing Egypt's new constitution. The protesters from Egypt's liberal and secular parties are worried about a proposed new article that would guarantee women's equality as long as it doesn't violate Sharia. Sharia is often translated into English as Islamic law, and we tend to associate it with the Taliban or Iran. But in reality, Sharia is a set of general guidelines for how an ideal Muslim society should organize itself.
2: There's a huge discrepancy in interpretation among the schools of thought on basic questions.
3: Khalid Fahmi, the head of the history department at the American University in Cairo, says the Quran explicitly mentions only a handful of rules and punishments. Everything else in Sharia has been derived through centuries of debate by Islamic jurists and scholars. So when Egyptian Islamists pledge to implement Sharia today, Fahmi wonders, what Sharia?
2: What Islamists do now is that they ignore these these discrepancies.
3: Gamal al-Banna is also critical of contemporary Islamist calls for Sharia. Al-Banna's late brother, Hassan al-Banna, founded the Muslim Brotherhood 84 years ago. But Gamal el is a progressive Islamic thinker who spends his days in a small office packed with books, looking out at a tree full of chirping birds. <laughs> el argues Sharia doesn't mean cutting off the hands of thieves or stoning adulterers to death. Prophet Muhammad set so many conditions for proving guilt and gave so many examples of mercy that corporal punishment was rarely, if ever, carried out. Sharia just means justice, says Albanna. In theory, non Muslim countries can apply Sharia, while so called Islamic countries, like Saudi Arabia, don't.
1: <laughs>
3: For a society to apply Sharia, it first needs to have freedom and justice, says Albanna. Modern states need to have mechanisms to apply Sharia justly. There need to be fair courts, appeals, guarantees, freedom to criticize the government. Islamists who think they know what Sharia is and can apply it tomorrow are ignorant and have imposed their backward views on Islam, says Al-Banna. Nadir Bakar is the spokesman of a new fundamentalist Islamist party that has many seats in the Constitutional Assembly the application of Sharia is one of the foundations of their platform.
1: This country is, uh, is an Islamic one. Okay, You have your right to live in this country with your own lifestyle. But there is the general system that you have to respect. Norms, customs that is agreed upon between all people. And if you break it, you will be against their overall consensus.
3: Those norms would include banning alcohol and bank interest... They might extend to gender segregation or to prohibiting women and non-Muslims from holding positions of authority. And this is exactly what's turning off many Egyptians, including religious ones. Nasreen is veiled and observant. She says she's obviously not against Sharia. But she doesn't trust the way religious conservatives will interpret what Sharia is. Let's, for example, say, what about women's work, if you want to work? I'm a working girl, actually, and I'm supporting my family and myself as well. Uh, what if they said women should leave work? They shouldn't work. They should stay at home. What i am going to do in such a thing? This is what the protesters outside the Constitutional Assembly fear. Not Sharia, they say but the men who would apply it. For The World, I'm Ursula Lindsay in Cairo.
0: The application of Sharia is a disturbing development in the north of Mali. Since March, the West African country has been split in two, with Islamist fighters controlling the northern part of the country, while government forces in the south try to wrest control. Now there are reports that the battle between the north and south is being fought by children. Both sides of the conflict are recruiting child soldiers. Corinne Dufka is a senior researcher for West Africa for Human Rights Watch. She says child soldiers have a growing presence in Mali.
4: The witnesses that we interviewed described them taking part in patrols, both uh, foot patrols and vehicular patrols. They described them involved in enforcing Sharia law. They described them guarding prisoners, manning checkpoints, collecting intelligence and so on. All of these things are, of course, prohibited by international law.
0: Dovka says the use of child soldiers is relatively new in Mali and that most of them are fighting for the Islamists in the north. She says so far there haven't been reports of children being coerced into joining the fight. Many of the children are joining alongside older male relatives, uncles, fathers, brothers, and so
4: on. We haven't documented forced recruitment. It appears to be voluntary to the extent that a child can actually make that decision.
0: The international community is grappling with what to do about the conflict in Mali. Today, France drafted a U.N. Security Council resolution asking for a detailed plan on international military intervention to help Mali's government regain control of the north. There are now more ways than ever to interact with the world on the go, flip through and now listen to our stories with the popular Flipboard app, You can download it for your iPad, iPhone, or Android devices at flipboard.com slash the world.
2: You're listening to The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by PBS and Frontline, presenting The Choice 2012, a definitive look at the presidential candidates, premiering tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm
0: Marco Werman. This is The World. India's economy has boomed in recent years, and yet the benefits of that boom have escaped large chunks of society. The number of poor people in the country has remained more or less stagnant for the past three decades. One program that aims to change that was recently launched in the Indian state of Rajasthan. The goal is to help today's children get ahead economically, and it starts with an unusual request at school. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has a story.
4: Some visitors have arrived in a public school in the village of Deoli. They gather in a classroom with a group of first through fifth graders. They give each child a small yellow plastic bag. One visitor, a young man named Dayanand
2: Kesri, addresses the kids. Look what's inside your bags and take out each item one by one.
4: The kids remove the contents of the bags. A square piece of newspaper, a slim wooden spatula, and a small plastic jar with a screw cap. The presentation soon takes an awkward turn. Another visitor, a man named Ayan Chatterjee, holds up a piece of newspaper, places it on the floor and squats over it. You'll poop in the fields tomorrow morning, right? Only a few people in the village have access to toilets. Most villagers relieve themselves in the open. Just keep the paper under you, like this, so you can poop on it, Okay? The kids nod, but they look uncomfortable. A few exchange glances... Unsure where this request is headed. In fact, they are being asked to collect stool samples and bring them back to class. It's all part of a program to help these kids get ahead in life. You see, these public schools cater to some of the poorest children in India. And kids in poor communities are often heavily infected with intestinal worms whipworms, hookworms, and roundworms. The visiting team here is with a non profit called Deworm the World. Ruth Dixon is the group's technical coordinator.
3: We do an initial assessment of how many kids have worms, what worms are around the state and what their prevalence is. And
4: that's what the stool samples will reveal. Dixon says the government will then use that information to come up with a plan to treat kids in infected areas. But what does giving medication to kill parasitic worms have to do with lifting people out of poverty? A lot, it turns out. Kids with long-standing worm infections are lethargic and anemic, and often miss class. So Dixon says, deworming children dramatically improves their education.
3: We see increased attendance at school, increased concentration, um, and a lot more educational years in children that are regularly dewormed. In the
4: long run, Dixon says, this improves the children's economic prospects, and this isn't just an assumption. Economist Michael Kramer of Harvard University has demonstrated the economic benefits of deworming in a long-term study in Kenya.
5: The study was done in western Kenya, near Lake Victoria, an area called Busia.
4: Busia is poor and rural. In 1998, a nonprofit began treating all schoolchildren in the area for worm infections. The deworming program was launched in stages it was only by the third year that they were able to deliver medication to all schools. So by the time the program was fully launched, kids who were treated in the first year had had more than two years of worm-free existence compared to those treated last. Kramer says that the benefits of those additional worm-free years persisted for those children who are now adults.
5: They have better self-reported health. They consume more meals each day. They're more likely to grow cash crops. They spend more time in entrepreneurship, more likely to start businesses.
4: The success of this program led the government of Kenya to launch a nationwide deworming effort. Other countries followed suit. In fact, the largest ever deworming program was conducted in one of India's poorest and most populous states, Bihar. The western Indian state of Rajasthan is the latest to join the trend. Back in the village of Deoli, the team from Deworm the World has returned to the school the day after making its awkward request to the kids. The students stand in a line ready to turn in the yellow plastic packets. A team of technicians collects the bags.
1: Next. What's your name? Manjeet Nina
4: Manjeet. Yeah. Manjeet is ten years old. After he submits a sample, a teacher, Tulsi Ram Mina, asks him if the exercise was a hassle. <laughs> Yes, he says, it was a hassle, and it felt strange. The teacher, Tulsi Ram Meena, says he wasn't sure how the kids would respond to the request.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, he
4: says, initially I wasn't sure if the kids would bring back samples. But he's pleased that the students cooperated it's great that the kids will receive free medication he says because it'll improve both their health and their iq starting next week these children and their fellow students across the state will receive their deworming medication a single pill that they'll need to take every six months it won't cost the government much less than 50 cents per child But those behind the program are hoping it'll enable the students to move up the economic ladder. 12-year-old Lokesh Meena is the son of a farmer. But he envisions a different future for himself. He says, I want a job with a computer. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, Deoli, India.
0: You can visit Rajasthan and the public school in Ritu's story. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz is a special platinum edition. (music) Platinum is a relatively rare metal. It makes up only an estimated .005 parts per million of the Earth's crust. Platinum is used by the auto industry to make catalytic converters and hydrogen fuel cells. It also goes into oxygen sensors and some anti-cancer drugs. And platinum also makes some very desirable bling. This precious metal can be found in several places around the world, but most of the globe's supply of the stuff is in Africa. We want you to pinpoint the country where the biggest platinum mines are. It's also where about 80,000 miners are currently on strike. Here's a hint. This country is also the fifth biggest gold producer in the world. We'll get the answer from an economic geologist in a few minutes. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, ahead discovering foods from around the world while learning to overcome the yuck factor.
6: So I'm looking at what I think is the yolk, mostly. sort of like veiny, but then, you know, what, what jarred me was this little leg in here.
0: What it's like to be a gastronaut,
2: coming up on The World. MRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at (laughs) heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. If you think the prospect of the conflict in Syria expanding beyond that nation's borders is far-fetched, listen to this. The head of NATO said today that the alliance has drawn up plans to defend Turkey if necessary. That was a warning to Syria after six consecutive days during which shells fired from inside Syria have landed in Turkey. Turkey is, of course, a NATO member, as is the United States. And so far, the U.S. has refused to get drawn into the Syrian conflict, even indirectly by, say, officially supporting the supply of weapons to the rebels. Shadi Hamid is with the Brookings Institution's Doha Center in Qatar. He says Turkey is looking for more support from Washington.
7: What we're hearing from Turkish officials is there's growing frustration with the U.S. because they feel that they're out there on their own. There's even a sense of betrayal, let's say, because if they get involved in Syria on their own, that's going to be a very difficult situation for the Erdogan government, and especially considering that there's rising domestic opposition to military intervention within Turkey. So that, that puts Turkey in a very constrained, difficult position right now.
0: And Shadi Hamid, what sort of weaponry from outside Syria is actually getting to the rebel forces at this point? I mean, BBC reporters have recently seen boxes of weapons intended for the Saudi military in rebel hands in Aleppo. So put this in perspective for us.
7: The Syrian rebels have been getting some light arms, but that's only really happened recently. There was a long lag time. Now, though, the complaint is a little bit different. It's that they need heavy weaponry to be able to fight the Syrian regime, and they're not getting those weapons. And there was actually a very interesting New York Times article the other day by Robert Wirth where he reported that the U.S. is actively discouraging its Gulf allies, namely Saudi Arabia and Qatar, from giving those heavy arms to the Syrian opposition. So obviously that's a major point of contention. The question is, why is the U.S. dragging its feet here when it's very clear that the rebels need these types of arms to be able to succeed.
0: Well, answer that question for us. I mean, if that's true, if the White House is discouraging Saudi Arabia and Qatar from arming Syrian rebels, why would they do that?
7: Well, I think they're particularly concerned about uh, this more advanced weaponry getting in the hands of the wrong people, namely terrorists, um, Salafi jihadists. And there are some elements of extreme foreign fighters in Syria now. So I think there's a general concern that this might go the way of Afghanistan during the late 80s and early 90s, for example. But there can be a more coordinated effort to work with certain groups on the ground and make sure that arms are getting to the right people. There's a lot more that can be done there because, up until now, each individual country, whether it's Turkey, Qatar, or Saudi Arabia, has its own people on the ground and they're not really coordinating this effort. There's even some intermediaries. There's a, a certain Lebanese politician who's been playing a major role in getting some light arms to the Syrian opposition. But is that really what we want? Do we want to have these unreliable intermediaries or should there be? a more coordinated, unified effort with the U.S. in the lead, hmm. working very closely with its Qatari and Saudi partners to make sure that they're all on the same page. That hasn't happened yet.
0: Are those concerns of the White House, uh, if in fact the White House is discouraging Saudi Arabia and Qatar from uh, arming the rebels, are those concerns that those heavy weapons ending up perhaps in the hands of terrorists, is that legitimate in your view? It's certainly
7: legitimate, but I don't think it's it's the overarching concern. It remains the case that Uh, Terrorists and extremist elements are still a very small minority of the Syrian rebel forces. Most of the rebel forces, while they may be Islamist in orientation, are not necessarily jihadists. so we shouldn't lump that all together and just assume Islamist equals jihadist. Here's the thing, there is no perfect way to intervene. There are always going to be risks involved, and you have to make a kind of cause-benefit analysis and say, yes, there is that risk. But there is, also, there is also a strong strategic interest to arming the rebels, because if they don't get additional arms support, training, expertise, they may not be able to win. And what we could have is a protracted stalemate for not just months, but potentially years. And I think we all have to ask ourselves, is that in the interests of, of Europe, of the U.S., of the U.N., of anyone involved? And I would say the answer to that is No.
0: Shadi Hamid directs research at the Brookings Institution's Doha Center. He's in Doha, the capital of Qatar. Shadi, thank you very much.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: In Egypt today, hundreds of people marched to observe a somber anniversary. It was on this day last year in Cairo that Egyptian security forces shot and killed 27 demonstrators who were protesting the lack of security for Coptic Christians. Since then, new Islamist president Mohammed Morsi has reigned in the country's once almighty military. Still, the marchers today complain that no one has been held accountable for the killings a year ago. In fact, they say not much has changed at all for the Coptic community. Robert Springborg is a professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. Now, Robert Springboard today is the anniversary of what some Christians refer to as the Maspero Massacre, that demonstration when 27 of them were killed by the army last year. And just over the weekend, the home of a Coptic Christian was shot at in the Sinai Peninsula. Is President Morsi doing enough to protect Egyptians who are not Muslim?
8: Well, he's speaking about it. To give him credit, he has highlighted it in his most recent speech and talked about the need to uh, defend Christians But the practicalities are another matter, and it raises the question of what is the relationship between Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand and the various security forces on the other. And I think it's probably the case that uh, the security forces are themselves pretty autonomous at this point. So the problems are the lack of control of the security forces as they are any attitude on the part of the Muslim Brotherhood.
0: So how does that relationship then affect the security of Coptic Christians in in Egypt?
8: Well, there is huge animosity, especially in Middle and Upper Egypt, between Muslims and Christians, going back to the early 1980s, because the Christians have believed that the security forces are sympathetic to the Muslims, if indeed not to Islamism more generally. So what's true in Middle and Upper Egypt is increasingly the case in Alexandria, Cairo, and various other places. The security forces need to be ever-present to tamp down any outbreak of problems But the security forces are clearly not sufficiently well officered, nor are the recruits of a a level that one could expect sort of competent policing. So it's a combination of a lethal problem, a government that's had some ambiguous attitudes, and a uh, central security force and normal police forces that are themselves uh, not competent. Did that
0: fact have anything to do with this Maspero massacre last year?
8: Well, the ones I was referring to just now were the Central Security Force, which are under the Ministry of Interior, which recruits the lowest levels. It recruits those who cannot make it into the regular military. So at Maspero, it was not the Central Security Force comprised of these largely illiterate recruits from the uh, rural Egypt. It was actually the military police, and that's the issue that uh, has caused so much concern because the military police reports directly to the chief of staff of the Egyptian military So this was a case that looked like it involved the military itself rather than the Ministry of Interior and these much less competent central security forces.
0: This anti-Muslim video that set off protests around the world last month and uh, notably first uh, in Egypt and Libya, that video was made by an Egyptian Coptic Christian apparently living in the U.S. How is that information affecting the divisions in Egypt?
8: Well, the Coptic hierarchy in Egypt has been condemnatory of the video and of the gentleman concerned and has clearly alarmed the Coptic community, which right now is leaderless because uh, the last pope died, what is it, four months now, five months, and uh, a new pope has yet to be chosen. So the video came at the worst possible time, thereby causing one to believe that it was calculated to be very provocative. And so, who are the agents behind that video is a question that everyone is asking.
0: Tell us why there is no pope for Coptic Christians right now in Egypt.
8: Well, because the selection of the pope is a very democratic process that involves various stages of selection and election involving literally hundreds of people, and I believe in this case is further protracted by the sensitive situation at present involving Muslim-Christian relations.
0: Robert Springborg, a professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. Very good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Why is it that certain cultures eat certain things? Eating insects isn't a big deal in lots of places, parts of Asia and Africa, for example. But here in the U.S., larvae at snack time can be the stuff of nightmares, while in parts of Asia, cheese seems repulsive. So where do our food preferences come from and why? Reporter Sally Herships went on a New York Odyssey to find out. Oh, and if you're eating, I'm just saying, you might want to step away from your food for the next few minutes.
6: There are picky eaters, and then there are the gastronauts of the world. What's the oddest thing by American standards you've ever tried? The blood thing. The blood thing, right. We had the blood dinner. Everything was bloody, and I loved it. What what does blood taste like? It's like uh, red wine almost, but more
9: like uh, aged and uh, spoiled and stinky. But it tastes
6: good. I like it. Irina Lust is a member of the Gastronauts, a club for adventurous eaters in New York. Tonight, the group is having Uzbek Bukharan Jewish food in Queens.
0: Eyeballs? That's probably my favorite weird thing that I've had through doing this.
6: Ben Racer, another gastronaut.
0: They're genuinely really amazing. I would eat eyeballs every day if it was practical.
6: But even the most adventurous eaters have their likes and dislikes. Curtis Callio is the Gastronauts' founder.
5: I don't like beans
9: that much. Really? <laughs> yeah,
6: really. And I, I can eat anything. I mean, Crickets? Beans?
9: Crickets. They're, if they're fried and salted,
6: yeah. Eyeballs? Beans?
9: Eyeballs. I love eyeballs. I've had goat eyeballs that were spectacular.
6: Aside from beans, Calio will eat almost anything. So I had rats the other day. Rat is Calio's version of sushi, a food he was kind of freaked out about trying. And then I put it in my mouth and I start to
0: chew and I taste it.
6: And, and I go, OK,
9: so this is rat and I'm eating it and it tastes good.
6: Beans or rat? Rat. <laughs> <laughs> Why rat over beans? You can kind of sum it up in three words. Salt, fat and sugar. Khalila Jaffe is the food program coordinator at NYU. Beyond salt, fat, and sugar, she says there are a couple of theories. You eat what you eat because the environment formed your culture, and it's very kind of environmentally deterministic. Because you only have certain things available to you. That's one possible reason certain cultures see insects as a tasty snack. Bugs are plentiful and a great source of protein. Then there's the other side of the debate. We eat what we eat because... That's what our parents ate. It's what we recognize as food culturally. Take cheese. Jaffe says when cheese was first introduced into Eastern Asia, it was viewed as really disgusting. Cheese is made from milk, which is this white secretion that is squeezed out of the mammaries of animals. And then you take it, introduce things like bacteria and mold, let it get funky until it actually stinks. And then you eat it. It's kind of gross. And once culture comes in, our food preferences can become even more complicated. So how do we decide what's off limits? Is it nature or nurture?
5: Generally, things like stones and feces is pretty much a universal avoidance.
6: Psychologist Paul Rosin studies how humans relate to food at the University of Pennsylvania. He says it's mostly nurture. After all, we are omnivores. There are a lot of different things we could eat.
5: We don't eat bats. We don't eat rats. We don't eat the most common
8: mammals. Think about all the animals we could eat. We're practically eating nothing.
6: Rosin says that's because almost all of the food taboos in the world are about animals. He says we think by eating animals we'll become more animalistic. So instead of asking why we find meats like rat disgusting, we should be wondering why do we make exceptions for beef or chicken? Well, we like them. And in this culture we disguise the origin of our animal food. I don't even eat sunny side up egg. Like I eat them scrambled. I don't even I, don't, I want the yolk and the whites to have done their beautiful magic together in a quiche. Chris Kavoris is a recovering picky eater in New York. I convinced her to join me and Ben Racher, the gastronaut, at a Philippine restaurant, Maharlika, for a balut tasting. Wondering what balut is? Nicole Ponseca owns the restaurant. Partially, it is a developed duck. Balut is a boiled, fertilized duck egg. Ponseca brought out a plateful for Ben and Krissa to try.
1: Oh, it just looks so good.
6: I really want to dare myself here. Can you describe what, what you're looking at? So I'm looking at what I think is the yolk, mostly. Okay. It's sort of like veiny, but then, you know, what, what jarred me was this little leg in here. When you crack the shell of your balut, you'll see a yolk, some white, the soup, really embryonic fluid, and a duck fetus. Ben ate most of the balut. Chrisa did try the eggy part and the broth, but she drew a line at the fetus. She says normally her food doesn't come with a face. This is the most adventurous thing I've ever eaten by a power of, I'm going to go with five, you know. I don't know if you could call
0: this the most adventurous thing I've had. I, like, because like, in the Philippines, this is normal. This is not weird. Oh,
6: yeah. Right. Literally, it's the equivalent of, like, a ho-ho. <laughs> but Ponseca, who grew up eating Balut, says she's freaked out by milk. And that's the thing ho-ho or embryo, what seems good to you and gross to someone else is kind of like turning milk into cheese. It all comes down to culture. For The World, I'm Sally Hirschips in New York.
0: What's the most adventurous thing you've eaten? Share your stories of stepping outside your food comfort zone at theworld.org. The weirdest, freakiest food I ever ate? I tweet at Marco Werman. Follow me on Twitter. I'll tweet it later. I'm not going to say it on the air. This is P-R-I.
2: PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Frontline. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives telling who they are and how they would lead, but there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, tonight at 9, 8 Central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. An economic geologist is someone who specializes in precious metals and the mining industries. I spoke to one today. His name is Anthony Noldret, and he can answer today's geoquiz. We wanted to know where most of the world's platinum comes from.
5: Well, it uh, comes from uh, South Africa. About 75% of the world's platinum comes from South Africa. And if you add the amount that is in Zimbabwe, then you would be talking about 85% of the world's platinum coming from this rather small part of Southern Africa. There's a large area about 300 kilometers by 250 kilometers just north of Johannesburg, where 75% of the world's platinum comes from. It's called the Bushveldt
0: Complex. All right. So South Africa is the answer to our geo-quiz today. And if any uh, smarty pants out there said the Bushveldt Complex, you get extra credit. So, uh, Professor, uh, why is platinum so valuable?
5: Well, it recognized, you know, for its uh, jewelry potential. A lot of people like it in jewelry. It has a lot of industrial applications. Perhaps the one that affects most of us is that it's an important component of our catalytic converters in our cars and keeping the atmosphere relatively clean. That uses about 45 to 50% of the platinum in the world. It's also used for electrical contacts in catalysis, uh, that is, uh, in um, you know, breaking uh, down oils getting hydrocarbons to combine to make margarine. It's used in sparking plugs. It's used in a whole range of industrial applications, but the principal one is is in catalytic converters in cars.
0: No, that's interesting. I mean, catalytic converters were mandated for U.S. automobiles and cars around the globe for environmental reasons. Uh, environmental demands in one area, in a way, have created this volatile labor situation in South Africa.
5: Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the problem in, in, in South Africa is unfulfilled expectations and the miners are uh,
0: striking for, uh, you know, higher wages. How long has platinum been mined in South Africa?
5: The first mining would have started in about 1923 in um, streams. But today, most of the platinum is contained in two geological units, which are rather like, you know, beds. They extend over very long distances, a matter of hundreds of kilometers, you know, half a meter or so thick. And they are mined uh, rather like you mine coal in a way, uh, sort of uh, if you can think of coal beds.
0: Has platinum's value been a determining factor in the value and ultimately the salaries of the miners who mined it in South Africa?
5: Yes, you have to uh, realize that uh, you know South Africa produced most of the world's gold up to about 10 or 15 years ago. The gold production is decreasing quite considerably. The platinum production is increasing. People have switched from one kind of mine to another kind of mine.
0: If uh, South Africa produces 75% of the world's platinum, where does the other 25% come from?
5: In the United States, in, in Montana, there is the uh, Stillwater Complex, which is another complex a little bit like uh, the Bushveld in South Africa. Possibly that produces 5 to 10% of the world's production. Originally, most of the world's platinum came from Russia in the Ural Mountains, but that's a relatively very small source right now. Some comes from Sudbury and Canada, and uh, it's scattered around in small places. But South Africa is absolutely dominant, and it's enormously important that sources of supply there are not seriously interrupted. Otherwise, we'd have a problem.
0: Platinum falls into this colloquial jewelry category of bling. I'm just wondering if you, as an economic geologist, understand its aesthetic value.
5: I personally think that gold is more beautiful than platinum. You know, platinum is a silver metal that many people would find hard to distinguish from silver. It uh, is significantly denser. It uh, doesn't tarnish, and it has a nice sort of warm touch to it.
0: Professor Anthony Noldret is an economic geologist at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Thank you very much. Thank you. We close today's program with music from South Africa, courtesy of DJ Manasa Puri from Joy FM in Lusaka, Zambia.
9: Today, I want to share with you the music of Vusi Mashasel from his new album, Say Africa. Vusi came to light in the mid 90s when he wrote songs and poems about South Africa post the apartheid era. His first album was called When You Come Back, and it was very quickly followed by one in 1994 called The Wisdom of Forgiveness. From his new album, here's one called Rio (laughs) Silakai. Ama si la luka le fa selena ka je no le atula le atula jona Jokimatata ke mathata le atura re rio tsilaka ifose ma from the album say africa which was uh, produced incidentally by Taj Mahal from the united states Here's an extract that I want to share with you. It's called "Vezubuše," and this one features the famous South African work song, Shosholosa. Shoshalosa, Shosholosa Shoshalosa, Shoshalosa, Shoshalosa,
0: Shosholosa Shosholosa
1: Shoshalosa,
9: Shoshalosa,
1: Shoshalosa,
9: Vezubus featuring Shosholoza, the very well known African work song from South Africa, calling on all Africans to unite and work together. Finally, here's the title track, Say Africa. This is a song that I'll dedicate to all Africans living in the diaspora whose hearts are still in the soil and in the dust of the mother continent of Africa. The languages and the places change And the sky has different stars I may be walking in the streets of a city called London the dust on my boots and the rhythm of my feet and my heart. Say, Say Africa. Say Africa. Say Africa. Say Africa. The latest album from South African guitarist and poet and songwriter Fussi Matusella. My name is Manasseh Perry I'll see you again next time.
2: Say Africa.
0: Check out the complete list of musicians recommended by guest DJ Manasa Piri in Zambia. That list is at the World.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
9: That
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International